Well, good morning. Like Mo said, we're going to start in a series in Proverbs this morning. It's really going to take us from now um, until the end of the year. So if y'all would, why don't you stand with me and let's read from God's word. We're starting with Proverbs chapter one. Starting in verse one and we'll go through verse seven. That'll be our text for the day. And it reads like this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase understanding. And let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word today knowing that you, your aim hasn't been to hide anything from us here in this room. Father, your aim has been to lead us and guide us into the best lives that you have for us, not just here, but in the life to come. Father, I pray that we would trust you enough to sit, to listen, to take your advice. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Why don't you take us seat? Believe it or not, your life is not about the major decisions that you make in your life. Your life is not really defined by the major decisions that you make in your life. Your life is defined by the minor, the mundane, the ordinary decisions that you make. It may feel like the most important thing about your life is the major decisions that you make, but if you think through your life... um, You actually make very few major decisions. Where you're going to live, where you're going to go to school, if you're going to go to school. Who you marry, what job you'll take, on and on and on. Those are major things that we make. And in the span of our lives, those are very minor, right? It's said that you and I make about 35,000 decisions Per day. Life is made up of a bunch of small choices. Who am I going to sit next to? Who am I not going to sit next to? How am I going to respond when they act like this? Right? More than what should I do about this big thing, more than what should I think, what should I believe, your life is made up of the constant question, what should I do about this? You know that that's true. How many times this week have you thought, what should I do about this? What should I do about the conflict in my marriage? What should I do about the sex life in my marriage? What should I do about 
the friendships that I have, they seem shallow. What should I do about this conflict that's always there? What should I do about my career that seems stale? What should I do about my dating prospects that seem slim? What should I do about my goals that are non-existent? What should I do about my family members that are annoying? What should I do about this grudge that I have? Should I take revenge? What should I do about this anger that's boiling? What should I do about this debt that I have? What should I do about injustice? Your life is filled with what should I do? And sometimes we spend a lot of time in church and we hear a lot about the type of people that we should become. We hear a lot about how to form our character But we don't get as much instruction about our choices, what it is that we should do, right? Um, I say all of this because you can have very good character and still make very bad choices. You can want, with the best of your heart, to help somebody that's an addict. But if you do it the wrong way, you'll ruin their lives. We need wisdom. Wisdom is just this. The skill for living. We all need it, right? And it's seen in go to any ethnicity, any culture, any background. And what you'll find is there are people that are constantly searching for wisdom. Go to the store and buy something after church. And what you'll see is magazines full of Wisdom on what you should do about your fitness, your sex life, the belly fat that you can't seem to get rid of, what you should do. And our world, especially in the West where capitalism runs things and we attach money to things that are valuable, it's the wise men in the world that are making money. It's the people that are writing the books that give the advice. We need wisdom. We want wisdom. And we all need wisdom for every area of our lives. Just by a show of your hands here. Raise your hand if you felt completely prepared for everything that you've stepped into in the past week. Raise your hand if you've had a bunch of training for things that you stepped into this past week but you still felt very unprepared for certain things that you stepped into this past week. We all need wisdom in every area of our lives. In spite of your best preparation, you still have to make these choices. And without it, like I said, we'll wreck our lives and wreck everybody else's life. And so here's what I mean without it. What I don't mean is that without advice. You and I get advice all the time, but wisdom is the ability to distinguish in between good and bad advice. What should I treasure, what should I keep, and what should I throw away? If you keep things that you should throw away, it's like keeping rotten bread in your house. If you throw away advice that you should keep, it's like washing a pair of jeans that has a bunch of money in it, or checks, right? right? Yeah, yeah, money will dry out, but those checks are gone. Without wisdom you find yourself filled with anxiety for the decisions that you have to make. 
You fear the ones that are getting ready to come up, and you regret the decisions that you made that you knew were the wrong ones. Every decision becomes this crisis. Well, I'm here today to tell you that it doesn't have to be like that. You do not have to be filled with anxiety as you go through life and make these ordinary, everyday choices that are going to shape the fabric of your life. The good news is that wisdom is out there. It is available for every situation that you have. And for the next 15 weeks in the life of the church, we're going to spend our time in this book. But it's going to be a long journey. And what you find is that a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Today is going to be our first step. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? And for that, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. I want to set a little bit of background because we're going to be here for the next 15 weeks. And this week and next week is really going to be like a part one and part two, because if you miss this, you are going to misinterpret the whole book. You are not going to use the book of Proverbs rightly. It'll be a bunch of moralistic sayings that you hurl at people that have no power to change them. Proverbs is much more than that. Uh, The first thing that we have to get is this. Proverbs is not a composition of works, right? So it's not like Solomon sat down and thought up all of these. Proverbs is a compilation, right? So back in this day and time, wisdom was passed down orally. So Solomon and a group of other guys through the course of time write this book, right? So as we think of this book, um, Solomon is to Proverbs what Beyonce is to Destiny's Child. Part of a group, the person that you think of when you think about all the hits, but not responsible for the whole thing. There's a team of folks. Solomon is the Beyonce of Proverbs. Proverbs are this too. Proverbs are adapted. They are not adopted. Here's what I mean. There's going to be lots of generic truths, and and hear this, that you'll read in this book, that you'll actually find in ancient Egyptian literature that was written prior to the Bible. That may kind of throw us for a loop because we're like, I thought the Bible was God's word. Well, it is God's word. Wisdom is made up of at least two things, observation, revelation. Observation or the scientific things that you just know about the world, that anybody can know, right? It's, yeah, all truth is God's truth. Observation answers these, how and when. How do I produce a good crop? Well, you farm. How do I make lots of money? Well, I don't know, but somebody does. How do you do all of these things, right? And so those are things that are just common across the board. So... It's true, and so those things are going to find their way in this book, and it's going to be common. But it's not God stealing truth from anybody. If all truth is God's truth, it's Solomon saying, ah, this is truth, that's God's, that's God's, that's God's, that's going to go in here. Wisdom is also about revelation. If observation asks how and when, revelation asks who and why. Purpose. How do you make lots of money? That's a how. There's a bunch of people that can tell you how to do that. Uh, 
Why is money not a good savior, master, and God? God's word's going to say that. Right? So there's lots of folks that will tell you how. And what lies un- un- underneath it is, if you make all this money, you're going to have security. But then God's word's going to say, wait, wait, wait. They're right on how, but they're not right on why. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, what is the purpose? The purpose of this book is to help you and I walk and live wisely in the world. Uh, there are scholars that think that as this book was written, it was written and compiled primarily to use in a, a boys' school that would help to train them on how to live and to walk. That's why as you read through the book, you may feel like, man, this book is pretty chauvinistic, right? It says, my son, my son, my son, watch out for that girl and for that girl. Here's how you find this girl. And it feels like, wait a minute, right? Well, look, this book seems to have been written, right, for this boys' school to help train them in this wisdom originally, but God's intent for the Bible supersedes the author's intent like this, right? Most of your Bible was written primarily to a Jewish audience. That was the goal. Judging by the pigment in the room, I don't think many of you in here are Jewish, right? But God's intent was that the wisdom, the truths that are found that would be broadly applicable to all. So it's going to be the same thing as we work here through this book. So let's start. Walking wisely in the world. Proverbs 1, just 2 through 6, just really lay out this. The benefits of wisdom. Wisdom is a good thing. It's something that you and I should want. And the point that he's trying to make here in 2 through 6 is that your life is as much about your character as the choices that you make. Good people can make very, very bad choices. Bad people at times can make good choices. So the Bible is concerned about who you are, but more than just who you are, more than just if you have a desire to help the poor, it wants to make sure you do it in the right way. More than just a desire of, I want to help somebody in their marriage, it wants to make sure that you do it the right way. Look at Proverbs chapter 26, 4 through 5. It's going to be up here on the screen. You don't have to turn there. And it says this, just to help you all see how this book is formed, right? Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness or you'll be like him. All right, clear. I don't want to answer him. And then the very next verse, answer a fool according to his foolishness or he'll become wise in his own eyes. And it looks and it says, John, that's a contradiction. Well, it's not. It's complementary truths. Proverbs are meant to be situational. Which one is right? It depends on what kind of fool you're engaged in a convo with. Sometimes you do need to respond to somebody rightly, right? You do need to engage and talk and to debate with them so that they're not wise in in their own eyes and they'll turn. Sometimes you don't need to talk. It's better to just walk. How do we know which one is right? Wisdom. So the Bible is going to help us know which is the right one, what it is that we should do. So look at here the benefits of wisdom. I think that it gives us at least three in verses 
2 through 6. And I just want you to see this here. The Bible is calling us to wisdom. It's not just saying be wise or else. It's giving us the incentives. It's trying to help us see wisdom is a good thing. Uh, And I think there's at least three things that we see here. Wisdom is for our growth. Wisdom is for the good of people. And wisdom is generally for all of us. It's for our growth. It's for the good of others. Generally for all of us. Verse 2 says this. Look, it's for learning wisdom and discipline. For understanding insightful sayings. I think that the key word here is this. Learning. Right? Wisdom is available. It's out there. But wisdom is actually out there. Wisdom is not in here. Wisdom is not intuition. Wisdom is not common sense. Wisdom is not something that we just all have within us. Wisdom is available to all, but nobody has it. Wisdom has to be learned. So if you walk through life and you constantly just make decisions based on what feels right and what feels good to you, the Bible's going to call you a fool. Wisdom is without there. It's meant for us to be learned, right? And then the next part of that says for understanding insightful sayings. The insight that it brings here is this, right? It's the ability for you and I to perceive the true nature of things. Best picture that I can give is this. I don't know much about football. Mike Davis does. Mike played college ball. If we both watch a football game, I see 11 guys lined up on defense. They're in some type of formation, but I have no clue what's going to go next. Mike sees the exact same thing, but since he's played, Mike can say, oh, they're formed like this, they're going to blitz next. Oh, they're formed like this, they're going to play off of the, the ball. And because Mike has insight, Mike can see trouble from a mile away. That's what wisdom does for us. It helps you and I to see trouble from a mile away. Oh, they're starting to get into it. I don't think that's going to work. Oh, this is the type of person that constantly nags. This is the type of person that's passive. I don't think that friendship's going to work. Right? It gives us the ability to see insight. It's meant for our growth. It's meant so that you and I can see danger from a mile away and know how to react. Verse 3, wisdom is not just for our growth. It's meant to make us godly. It's meant for the good of of others. Verse 3, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity. Wisdom is not just for you. The book of Proverbs is not just something that you use and read so that you can advance in your career, in your relationships, in your friendship. The fruit of wisdom is justice. People that look like God and do what God does in the world. Case in point, 1 Kings 3 starts off, Solomon prays that God would give him wisdom, right? We read it. God gives him wisdom. Do you know the first thing he does with that wisdom? Two prostitutes come to him and argue over a child. One is trying to defraud the other one out of their child. And what this king does is spend his time 
working out justice for society's outcasts. Don't tell me that you want wisdom if you don't want to do with that wisdom what God intends for you to do with that wisdom. The fruit of wisdom is justice. It's not meant for you. It's meant so that you can make this world like God wants this world to be. More than trivia, more than knowledge, more than a pathway for your success, wisdom is meant so that you can benefit the world around you. Three, wisdom is generally for all of us. Look here at verses uh, four and five. For teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning and let a discerning person obtain guidance. Verse four is all about people that are young and inexperienced and the purpose of wisdom is first of all to help you know all of us in here that don't have much gray yet. Um, you don't know as much as you think that you do. You know, at every age of life, you kind of find yourself um, wanting to buck up against wisdom of people that have been there before you. And this is meant to tell you, no, 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 look, this book is meant to tell you or, or to help you see you don't know it all yet. And the benefit of that is that experience is not the best teacher. Somebody else's experience is the best teacher because you learn the same lesson without having to go through the same heartache. Imagine if everything that you learned, you had to learn by your own experience. What if everybody had to learn that laziness in your work will mess up your life? What if we all had to learn from experience that unforgiveness never gives us what we hope for? What if we all had to learn that infidelity in marriage is going to ruin your life and the lives of people around you? We would all be crushed. We would all be ruined. But the beauty of wisdom is that it'll bring you into a place that your resume won't. Have, have you ever tried to get a job and they sit down and they say, it's great, I'm glad you applied to be the CEO, uh, but actually you don't have the experience to get um, this job. I know you manage the Chuck E. Cheese, but this isn't the, the same thing. What this is saying is, yo, what wisdom does is it gives us the benefit of a long track record. Now, for those that are young, you don't know everything. But then it goes on in verse 5 and it says this, look, let a wise person listen and increase on understanding. A discerning person obtain guidance. For those of you that have gray in here, you don't know it all, right? It's easy after we've lived some life to feel like we know what to do. But what this is saying is wisdom is generally available for all of us and everybody needs it. The only people that don't think they need to grow in wisdom are fools. But the only people that are really wise are those that will acknowledge they're fools. All of this is to say oh, wisdom is not a destination. It's a journey. It's a pathway. All of us are on it. And the application is this. Look, as we try to look for this wisdom in God's world, 
God is not trying to hide it. He's not trying to trick anybody. The secret of the keys to life aren't hidden behind some magazine subscription or master class that you have to pay for. It's here and available in God's word, and you want it, don't you? You want a good life. You want good for people that are around you. You want access to it. Who doesn't want to see trouble coming from a mile away? Who doesn't want to avoid problems and know how to address problems when they come? Who doesn't want to be experienced beyond their years? We all want it. We all need it. And this book starts off and it says it's here for whoever will take it. But there's a key. Each, you know, you look at any map, and, and on a map there's this little key, right? So if you want to make sense of the map, there's a key. These are the borders. This is a house. It may have a you are here sign. Verse 7 is that, and I want you to hear this. Listen, verse 7 is not just the key to this passage. It's the key to the entire book of Proverbs. If you do not get this truth, Proverbs will be no good to you. It's the motto. Verse 7 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Here's the point that I think he's trying to make and the point that we need to grasp first and foremost. We walk wisely in the world by walking closely with God. We walk wisely in the world by walking closely with God. If you do not walk close with God, as far as the Bible is concerned, you will not walk wisely in the world. Now, I know that presents a bunch of problems, and I'm going to get to all of those, right? So you may feel like, John, I feel like you are saying, if you are not a Christian, if you have not submitted your life to the Lord Jesus, that you can't live wise in the world. And I know a bunch of folks that are wise, and what I would say is, I am saying that, but let me explain to you. Um, let me explain to you what I mean by that, but the first thing that I want to do is I want to show you where I got this from the text, and I want to explain what this term, the fear of the Lord, means. First things first, it's this. Where did I get it from the text? Look here. In Hebrew poetry, it's all about parallelism, not rhyme. We think of poems and we think, you know, Mary had a little lamb, fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. We think in terms of rhyme. Hebrew poetry is parallelism, which means it starts with the first line, and the next line is going to explain what they mean by that first line. They can explain it by saying the same thing twice. It can explain it by uh, starting to show the other side of the coin, or they can say it by expounding on what they mean. In this case, it's a parallelism where they say this term and they give the other side of the coin to clarify what's meant. And so you see here is this, you know, what's contrasted here is 
knowledge and fools, right? Knowledge is going to be an aspect. It's going to be a part of wisdom. It's not the same thing, but it is the first step. And what's contrasted here, it says, look, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, what's needed to be wise, and fools are going to despise wisdom and discipline. Throughout the book of Proverbs, you're going to run into two people and only two, the wise and the foolish. There's no one between. You're one or the other. This line is drawn in the sand. And as far as this text is concerned, in order to walk wisely in the world, you have to walk closely with God. That word despise there is a relational term. You despise people, not principles, right? So it's those that walk closely with God are going to get wisdom. Those that despise God and turn their back on him are going to be fools, right? So let's start with this word beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Simply put, what he means by this is this. One commentator says it like this. What the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to music, what what numbers are to math, the fear of the Lord is to knowledge. Without an alphabet, it's the most basic blocks that you need to read. If you don't have that, you cannot read. There is no music without notes. It can be the wrong ones or, or the right ones. You know, you saw Mo up here. Yeah, he sang into that microphone. That's the wrong ones. But it was music. But it was music. But it was music. There's no math without numbers. And so what he's saying is this fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord, this concept is actually the beginning of wisdom, right? So if you do not have this, you will not walk wisely in the world. To walk wisely in the world, we need to walk closely with God. Here's what the fear of the Lord means. It's not just terror. It's not just being frightened. It's not less than that, but it's just that, right? The verse that Bob read. Lord, if you kept the count of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered or feared. Right? Um, We fear somebody who we owe a great debt to. I used to fear Sally Mae whenever she would call because I owed this, this great debt to her. But then one day somebody came and paid that debt off for me. And now I don't even think about it. Right? I'm not scared. If you only think of God as this person that you owe this great debt to, and you feel like that that debt's paid off, then you're not going to fear him. What the psalmist says is, God, but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. There was a guy, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who paid off $60,000 of my student loans. I revere him. I think about him often. Whenever anybody brings up this great debt that they have, I think, I don't have that debt because I've got this great friend, right? So it's this reverence, right? 
this God that the Bible is telling us to fear, it's not just to be in terror, it's to know our place towards him. Right? So the fear of God is at least three things. It's this, understanding our place in the universe. God is big, God is creator, we are created, we're small. So if I fear him and I really get my place, I'm not going to try to take his place. To fear God means I embrace dependence on him. I don't fight for independence. I don't fight to do my own thing, but I try to stay close to him. And to fear God is this. I acknowledge his presence always. In every choice that I have to make, in every decision that comes across my way, in every piece of anxiety that I have, I constantly I'm aware that God is there with me. I get my place. I know my dependence and I acknowledge his presence. So here's what that means. Here's the key to that. Here's what that means for us. That if you're really going to walk wisely in the world, you have to walk closely with God. And what that means is that if you really have this fear of the, the Lord, God has to be the absolute center of absolutely everything that you do. He's not an add-on. He can't be a footnote. He can't be somebody that you make time for after you've already set up what you're going to do for your day. That if you really know your place, you acknowledge your dependence, and you are aware of his presence, the fact that God is everywhere, which means this, he's no closer to any one point than any other point, then you have to say, me being aware, me living in this fear of him, means that I am always aware, not just of how I relate to things, but how God relates to things. To not fear him. To not make him central is foolishness. Best example I can give is um, I was scrolling through Twitter this past week and I've even screenshotted uh, some tweets that we're going to walk through. Frank Oz, the creator of Bert and Ernie, right? Yeah, yeah Muppets, y'all know them. Um, he got into an interesting debate over somebody that wrote an article about the sexual or, or, or orientation of Bert and Ernie, right? And so here's what, what he says here. should be on the screen. It seems Mr. Mark Saltzman was asked if Bert and Ernie are gay. It's fine that he feels they are. They're not, of course. But why that question? I think this is so helpful just for us, right? But why that question? Does it really matter? Why the need to define people as only gay? There's much more to a human being than just straightness or gayness, right? So he's not making a statement on it. I'm not sure if he's a Christian, but he's saying they're not. Then, some, then somebody responds to him and says this, why are they not? You know, I'm not trying to fight. I just want under. He said he wrote that from his point of view, right? So Mark Saltzman writes this from his point of view that they're getting, and he's saying, well, if he thinks they are, then they should be. And here's what Frank Oz says. I created Bert. I know what and who he is. <laughs> then this next guy says this. 
You may have created the puppet, but it's now art in the public view. Your creations are whatever the viewer feels they are. Yours is just one of thousands of interpretations on the characters. And, 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 and then Frank Oz, I think he's trying to be sarcastic, but he says that he's not. He says this, help me to understand this, please. You're equating the viewer with the creator. Is that right? After Picasso created, I don't know how to say that. Y'all can see that on the screen. His perception of his work carried the same amount of weight as any viewer. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm really just trying to understand. And then some other guy that's not involved in the convo jumps in. Y'all, y'all, y'all know how this takes place. And he says this. Your perception of Mr. Oz's art may be whatever you make of it, but that's all it is. Your perception. The reality is whatever the artist or creator decides it is. Waste your time telling people otherwise, if you wish, but it's folly. I just say this, look, because, right, this is not a sermon on homosexuality and God's design for all of that, which is an important question, like every other question that we're going to get to in life. But it's a secondary question. The primary question is who gets to dictate the advice? Who gets to say what things are? Right? Who's the creature? Who's the creator? Can we cross those lines? And what he's saying is no. And what the Bible says is if you do not fear God and you try to switch places with God, and now define what's best for your heart and for your soul. It's folly. You're despising wisdom. It's foolishness. Now, I know what you're saying, right? You're, you're trying to say, John, it sounds like you're saying then only Christians are wise. But I know other people that are wise. I know moguls, right? No, Diddy is wise in his own right. Steve Jobs Einstein, all of these folks that have exemplified wisdom and God has not been at the center. And I would remind you, wisdom is made up of two things. Observation, things that we can know about this world, and revelation, things that we have to take by faith. Just because those things are completely distinct, it doesn't mean that at times they don't overlap and look like the same thing. And you know that this is true. There are two points in a day where a broken clock is precisely right. But if you take that snapshot and try to live your life by the broken clock, you're going to be late for things. We all are late for church because your clocks are probably broken. (laughs) Listen. Here's what I mean. Look. If you and I were to leave here. And you say, I want to go to Chattanooga. And I say, I want to go to Charlotte. We'll get on 20. I'll go on Highway 85. You'll go on Highway 75. Through downtown, it looks like we're on the same path. Both people, folks could look at us driving through downtown and they'll say, oh, there's a lot of stuff that they have in common. This looks like the same path. But eventually, those roads are going to split. That's why in Proverbs it says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it's going to lead to death. 
That's why Christ is going to come and say later, look, what good is it if a man has the wisdom to gain the whole world? That he's wise enough to make the choices, to make enough money, to buy himself into power, and he owns the whole world. What good is it if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? He's a fool. We walk wisely in the world by walking closely with God. God has to absolutely be the absolute center of everything. That's it. And it seems so simple, right? But it's not. So what I don't want you to leave here with is conviction and say, all right, I just have to be harder. I've just got to try. All right, here's what what I'm going to do this next week. I'm going to set an alarm and I'm going to make sure first thing in the morning I get up and I read God's word. And I'm going to make sure that I read through the book of Proverbs on my way home so that next week I'm ready for all the things that that John's going to say. It's not about trying harder. The reason why we don't fear God is because we fear so many other things. And underneath all of your fears are the things that you really love. And the things that you really love are going to lead you to a disordered life. Here's what I mean by this. If you fear the approval of people, you'll never make consistently wise choices. Do you know why? Because you fear the loss of their approval so much that you may be kind to them, but you'll never correct them. You, you may flatter them, but you're never going to tell them the truth about themselves. Because if you tell them the truth about yourselves, they may not like you and give you what you need. And that's not love. That's lust. That's you trying to use them for your own purpose. Proverbs 29.5 says this. A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a feet for his net, or spreads a net for their feet. What that means is this, that if you love the approval of people, if that's what you fear, if that's what you live for, it's not just that you'll be a bad friend, you'll be a dangerous friend. You'll do harm to everybody around you because you'll let them go off cliffs just so long as they don't think ill of you. Or you'll be so eager to get their love that when they don't get it, you'll berate them and pulverize them until you get it. And you'll be a bully. So every time that the book of Proverbs, that God tries to give you wise words, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to despise it because it's attacking what you really love. If you fear control and power, you're never going to make consistently wise choices about your friendships. Do you know why? Because the thing that you fear most is being out of control. And when you see that you're out of control and life doesn't work like you want it to, you have no problem saying uh, harsh things to folks or hard things, but you're not going to let things go. You're going to seek revenge. You want to pulverize people to make sure that you stay in control. And every time that you read or come across God's words about how vengeance is God's, how you need to be patient with folks, you're going to despise it. If you fear status, accomplishments, achievements, here's what that may look like. 
in the same way that we wake up each morning and go and eat food because we're empty on the inside, the first thing that you go to in the morning testifies where you think your emotional and spiritual health will come from. So you can say all you want to. I need to get up. I need to read God's word. Why don't I? I'm just not a morning person. But you wake up at 5 a.m. and you can't go to sleep. And the first thing that you do is you check your phone and Instagram. And you look for likes, comments on selfies and things. Because if somebody like that, if somebody says these things about me, then they testify to my self-worth. And I'm empty on the inside. And what I really need for them is to fill me up. And God's word can say all that it wants to about the wise way to walk, but you're going to despise it because it doesn't give you what you need. Money and security and on and on we can go, but when God's advice contradicts your true loves, you're going to despise him, and you as the creature want to put yourself in the place of the creator. So look, Try as hard as you want to. You'll never make consistently good choices or wise choices unless the loves that you have, the fears that you have, aren't erased, but they're displaced. Loves don't just go away. Loves get eclipsed. Every time I feed my daughter, I give her, uh, so, you know, my wife has been away this past week. So, I mean, she's had, you know, frozen chicken and peas for like four meals. And so she eats her food and she's fine with it. But then when I come with my food, what she does is she throws it away and she looks up and she says, I want that. When the Bible talks about what Jesus Christ did for us, he didn't just come down and say, stop loving this love God. He doesn't just want us to be convinced He wants you and I to be captivated, not just fear of any God, but fear of this Lord. Look here at verse 7, the fear of the Lord. Whenever in your Bible you see this Lord spelled with all caps, it's what's called the transliteration. It is the way that we in our Bibles write not just God, but Yahweh, the covenant God. Look, Israel was a nation that said they wanted God's wisdom. God gave them his wisdom in the Ten Commandments. And the first thing on the list was, you shall have no other gods before me. Make me the absolute center of absolutely everything. Moses goes away for a bit, and do you know what they do? They make a golden calf. They break the first one of ten. They don't even... Make it down this list. Moses goes back up, Exodus 34, and he asks for God to reveal himself. And God says this, look, this is the first time that God introduces himself by this name. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. 
So here's what takes place. Moses asks God to reveal himself, and God reveals himself, not just as creator, but redeemer. Not just as somebody who we owe our fear, but he's redeemed us, and he's saved us, and he's proven the fact that he's loved us, but he also says he's not going to leave the guilty unpunished. The guilty are going to get what they deserve. You and I have loves that are far from God. We should be in terror. Why is this good news for us? This is good news for us because you and I didn't fear God. We as creatures forsook our role as creatures and try to redefine what was good and take the place of the creator. And as a result of that, that earned us our death. But God sent his son, Jesus, who was the creator, and he traded places with us. We tried to trade places with God, and it earned us death. Jesus successfully traded places with us. And it earned us life. We walked the path of fools and we should experience destruction. Jesus walked the path of the wise and he earned or he took on the destruction so that you and I can experience the life and and the joy that comes from God. Jesus lived his whole life fearing only God. So when he comes to this earth, And he's on trial. And they say to him, listen, all you have to do is renounce what you said. Seek our approval and you're going to be scot-free. Jesus feared God so much that he didn't need the approval of men. He essentially said what Christopher Wallace said. Picture me being scared of somebody that breathed the same air as me. And Jesus spoke the truth, not just to people that he was scared would hurt them, but he spoke the truth to the very people that would put him on the cross. So now for all of us that have put our trust in him, Not our trust in how well we keep God's law, but our trust in him. We can embrace our place in the universe. We can remember that we are tiny and we are weak, but we are God's. We can be dependent on him, not just for our life here on earth, but for our spiritual life. And we can sing. We can be aware of his presence, not as that of a judge who we're scared is out to get us, but as a father who is eager to hold us by the hand and to guide us through life. Adam walked away from God's wisdom in the garden, and when he heard the presence of God, he hid out of terror. You and I, in the midst of the worst of our sin, in the midst of our loves for God being uncovered and us feeling this conviction and the shame, we don't have to hide from God out of fear, out of terror, because Jesus took that fate for us. And when, we, when you really get it, when you really believe that, 
It gives you this freedom. Now you have a freedom to take his advice, to be kind to to friends, or to correct them, because at the end of the day, you found the approval of the one that really matters, and you don't need people's approval, and you're free to be a good friend. If you find that the one that was the epitome of beauty forsook his beauty to give us a beauty that would never fade, you and I don't have to look to Instagram for that. For likes and acknowledgments. You and I are free to embrace what God says about sex because that does not define our worth. When we're reminded of the one who had all wealth but for our sake became poor so that we would have true riches, you and I are reminded that at the end of the day, money is just money. It's not security. We have security in what Christ has done for us. You and I are free to apply all of God's wisdom without despising any of it. To walk wisely in the world, you have to walk closely with God. Jesus has provided the invitation for you and I to do so. So the real question is not what should I do about X. That's a secondary question. The first question is, who do I trust? And God hasn't only proven that we should trust him in the way he created the world, but he showed and he's proven that you can trust him in the way that he's redeemed the world and accepted those of us who have loved so many things more than him. Be captivated by Jesus. Read about him. Be reminded of what he did for us. And as your love for him grows, your love for the other things will shrink. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the midst of being concerned with so many lesser things, um, you give us the key to actually walking wise in the world, Father. It's the major decision that will shape all the rest of them. I pray that we would trust you fully and that you would be the absolute center of absolutely everything, Father. You've earned it. You've proven that you're good because even when we fail you and turn our back on you, you haven't turned your back on us. Help us to be captivated by this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray.